So it's the Queen of England's 70th Jubilee. She has been on the throne longer than any other monarch, perhaps ever, as far as I know. And although I say the Queen of England, she really is the Queen of the Commonwealth of Nations. And that includes Australia, which is why I'm interested in it. It might be difficult, I imagine, for Americans, among others, to really get a feel for what the monarch means and what this queen in particular means to people. It's not like the presidency. People seem to have diametrically opposed views of the president at any given point in time. But when it comes to the queen, to the monarch of one of the nations in the Commonwealth, the feeling is quite different among the populace. There is this kind of paternalistic feel to the Queen. She's like everyone's grandmother to some extent. But there's also a deeper sense in which people who are not anti-monarchists, there's a sense in which we value the sovereign in a different way. I have written myself about this before. It's an evergreen issue, almost, in countries like Australia. And that issue is, why is the Queen someone who was born in Britain, the head of state in Australia. Now, the truth is that in Australia, although the Queen is on our money, on our coins and on some notes, and although the crown is what we in legal terms refer to as synonymous with the state, and although even our Navy labels its own ships HMAS, which stands for Her Majesty's Armoured Ships, the fact is that the Queen's representative in Australia who is called the Governor-General, well, that's where the actual power resides. The power, by the way, is the power to dismiss a government. The Governor-General or their delegate is the person in Australia who can dismiss our Prime Minister and the rest of his cabinet. In the UK, the Queen can, in theory, remove the British Prime Minister. It's only happened once in Australia, and I don't know that it's ever happened in Britain. Now, the issue that some anti-monarchists have in Australia, as well as in Britain, is that you have this person who is not elected, holding a high office. But this person should not be regarded as a ruler. The monarch is not a ruler in the sense that they do not set any rules. They have a specific capacity to make one important decision, the decision about whether or not to allow the government to continue to operate or to dismiss the government. And that's it. They can't make up rules, unlike the actual rulers who are elected. And by the way, a lot of people in those democracies, in that government, are rulers in the sense that they can make up rules, but are not themselves elected. These are the bureaucrats. So anyone who is concerned about an unelected ruler, supposed unelected ruler, like the Queen or a Governor-General, should be far more concerned about the bureaucrats in the administration of these governments who are themselves unelected and who go about making all sorts of rules and sometimes even thwarting the efforts of the elected representatives to get their policies enacted. That can happen as well. That's far more of a problem than the figurehead at the top, the so-called head of state. Now, this system of democracy that we have, both in Australia and Britain, more or less, we're very, very similar in this regard, is the most stable that has ever existed. It has fostered the fastest progress that has ever happened here on Earth. It has ushered through the British Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution, times of philosophical, artistic, scientific, technological, and most importantly, perhaps moral progress. And it, Britain, this constitutional monarchy, has stood up to and overcome fascism and communism and all sorts of other kinds of authoritarianism over the centuries. And yet, in Australia, for example, we do have people who we call Republicans. 
It's not like the US Republicans. It's not a political party. The Republicans here are just anyone who is an anti-monarchist, someone who doesn't like the constitutional monarchy and instead wants an elected president. Now, there are all sorts of problems with this. The most important, perhaps, is it concentrates power in that head of state. If suddenly they're elected, then they have, by virtue of the fact they simply are elected, lots more power, lots more influence over people. But the monarch is not elected. The Governor-General is not elected. In the case of the latter, they're appointed by the government. And in terms of head of state, well, that term, head of state, actually doesn't appear in the Australian Constitution. The position, head of state, is supposed to label the highest-ranked person employed by the government. This is different to the head of government, which in Australian Britain is the Prime Minister who is basically the person who has the widest array of powers to make decisions. The Governor-General, the Queen, like I say, is limited to making basically one decision of consequence only. They cannot enact policy. They cannot enact rules. And in that sense, they're not a ruler. All they can do is decide whether the government can remain in power or not. And most of the time, they allow the government to remain in power because there's no good reason to remove them. But Republicans in Australia argue not only is the monarch not elected, but that the monarchy is outdated and the head of state should be Australian. I used to be among those who thought this. It seemed like common sense. But then I read more and thought more and spoke to more people and realised that this notion of the monarchy being outdated is completely wrong. The monarchy as it exists now, its relationship to nations in the Commonwealth, has evolved over centuries it is now a modern outworking of encountering various trials and tests against the reality of a modern political system and modern morality and a modern global community of nations operating by different principles. And what you get after centuries of progress and the winning of wars and so on is the constitutional monarchy we have now. Now, we in Australia, well, the sensible people, <laughs> we love places like the USA, for example. To a far lesser extent, we like places in Europe like France and, well, Ireland, maybe. Um, it's very difficult to list other places over there that are really good examples of democracies. But places that have allowed for rapid progress, relative stability, without falling into tyranny now and again. But nothing much holds a candle in this regard to a place like the United Kingdom and its sons and daughters like Canada, New Zealand, Australia. Liberty, stability, rapid progress, a trifecta that no other nations globally can be compared with, except perhaps the USA. So for the Queen's Jubilee, I'm re-upping my article that I wrote about five years ago called Republicans versus Monarchists in Australia. So go to the Substack article for that and see why I think a constitutional monarchy, as compared to having an elected president, is actually better, certainly for a place like Australia. The monarchy is better. And, and here and now, I'll just leave you with the final few lines that I wrote in that article. I wrote, quote, our constitutional monarchy maintains the constant stability that allows for the change that parliament brings. To remove that stability, that is the very thing that has facilitated our dynamic society. And so removing it would be dangerous. We then have two seats of power the parliament and the presidency, both subject to change. The crown is the dignified and the parliament is the efficient, said Walter Baghot in the English Constitution, to separate out the symbolic 
versus the way things are actually achieved. In modern science-type language, the crown is the constant and the parliament is the variable. We change this at our peril, end quote. So in the UK, the Jubilee celebrations have been huge over there. There have been performances and parties and all sorts of things. And I've been trying to watch it from a distance over here in Australia, missing all the action, which is unfortunate. But one of the last things I watched was a performance of the band Queen, if you know the band Queen, <laughs> their hit song from the 70s, I think it was the 70s, called We Are The Champions. Anyway... Queen, the band, as it exists now, performed that song outside Buckingham Palace with the new lead singer, Adam Lambert. And he was belting out the lines, quote, We are the champions, my friends, and we'll keep on fighting till the end. We are the champions. We are the champions. No time for losers because we are the champions of the world, end quote. So goes that song. And it was as if he was singing about the UK itself. He may as well have been. Britain has always fought against the darkness of tyranny, of stasis, of disease, war, famine, a lack of progress, and so on and on it goes. They are champions of the world. So perhaps it's ironic to some extent that me, a person who leans more libertarian, by which I mean more anti-authority and not pro-state or pro-government or pro-authoritarian, I lean towards the monarchy. Because I think it's the instantiation of power dilution. The power of the monarch has been diluted to almost nothing in law anymore. Unlike the opposite impulse, where state power becomes more and more concentrated, especially in the unelected bureaucracy. In Australia, there's a real push right now for a so-called ICAC, an independent commission against corruption. I don't know if Americans have anything like this, but this would be an unelected body that has oversight over the entire federal government. And we have these in state politics, by the way. We already have in the state of New South Wales an ICAC, an independent commission against corruption, who has the power to remove, to certainly investigate and then to make it really uncomfortable politically, so ultimately remove, the head of the state, you know, our premier and others as well. And this ICAC is separate to the police and the federal ICAC that some people want, want this administrative body separate to other investigative bodies for the purpose of having power over elected officials. Statists and bureaucrats, administrators, people who work for the government love this kind of thing because it removes power from the elected and ports it into the unelected officials who cannot be easily removed by democratic vote. And so this is the problem in any democracy. The bureaucrats, who are the government to some extent, to some real extent, cannot be removed easily by any election. Elections come and go, politicians come and go, but the bureaucratic apparatus remains in place. Now, as I've already conceded, and many monarchists, so-called monarchists, will concede, the monarch cannot be removed. But with the monarch, they're not enacting policy. They can't make policy. They can't make rules and decisions unlike the bureaucrats who can. They can make policy. They can make rules. They can ask for those rules to be enforced. And as I also observe, sometimes these bureaucrats would seem to have as much, if not more power, than the elected ministers. You just consider someone like the head of treasury who can delay the decisions made by the elected treasurer for bureaucratic reasons. Okay, 
enough of a rant on that for now. This weekend is a real celebration for some of us about our special nations that have experienced extended peace as well as progress, in large part because of our system of government. Tyranny and anarchy cannot be expected to do better, absent a good explanation of how this would work. We have something of an explanation about why democracies and why systems like constitutional monarchies work as well as they do. It seems we have these systems in place which are able to achieve the solving of problems faster than any alternative known. I'll leave that there and encourage you to read through my article about monarchists versus Republicans in Australia. On a related topic, Yaron Brook produced an excellent podcast on the role of police in society. After the most recent school shooting in Texas, where some of the police apparently did not go in as quickly as they might have, there appeared to be universal consensus that these police were too selfish, too self-interested, and this explained their cowardice. Now, when I first heard this kind of analysis of what was going on, I thought to myself, well, no, that can't be it. It might very well be cowardice, but cowardice is not selfishness. Selfishness, in the Ayn Rand objectivist style, comes with pride. The idea that I am good and I am deserving because I have value. Now, if you're an officer of the state or a soldier or someone else like that, then being truly selfish would mean seeing your job as a protector as having high value. You've chosen to go into this high value profession because you think your life has high value. So you're doing things that have high value. So you would, in theory, selfishly seek to guard the society that provides for such a high valued position that you can occupy. And you would seek to protect people in that society because that's all an extension of self. But a person with low self-esteem would hide and cower in a way that is, that is not enlightened self-interest. There's nothing enlightened about hiding in fear in situations such as occurred with this Texas shooting. So this is what I was sort of thinking as I heard the talking heads on television talking about this terrible tragedy. But then I turned on Yaron and I thought, well, he's definitely going to have something interesting to say. He produced a podcast all about it. And it was so well said that I've really got nothing to add beyond what Yaron has said. And so I'll link to Yaron's podcast on this specific issue in the Substack. And the the crucial difference between Yaron's analysis and everyone else's analysis on this that I've heard anyway, including by some other prominent podcasters, is that Yaron has put values and ideals front and centre of the analysis of that terrible event. It's worth listening to. All of Yaron's podcasts are worth listening to, and everything he does seems to be underrated and deserves far more attention than it gets. But this episode in particular, it's just a regular one he dropped in the long list of podcasts he has, is especially good on this particular issue. What Yaron did not mention, but which I was thinking, was that in the USA, like some other places, there have been about two years worth of people over the last two years variously saying things like defund the police and calling the police the enemy and in some places police actually behaving like the enemy, certainly in places like Australia anyway, where excessive force has been, in some cases, almost unquestioningly 
used by the police forces. And so all of that bad publicity, perhaps, bad behavior, poor public sentiment focused on police uh, has to be factored into this kind of thing, I think, where next minute, after all of that, they're now being asked to save lives by risking their own. Now, it's no excuse that they're not risking their own lives by saving others, but it's a factor, isn't it? Where these people have been cast as villains, and in some cases behave like villains, and then expected to be the heroes. Now, Douglas Murray was on Bill Maher, on Real Time with Bill Maher, as well a few nights ago. And that's well worth watching, the whole episode, if you can get a hold of it somewhere. And I'll link to a clip on YouTube where Douglas is talking to Bill Maher. And one of Douglas's comments on this, this issue of police cowardice, police not doing what apparently they should, was, well, for Douglas to say, basically, look, as a police officer, you get to walk around with your head held high, ordering people to do this, that and the other, and generally getting to feel in society like you're very important. And you are. But the social contract we have for those people is that for all of that, all of that respect and the fancy uniform and the way in which you get to comport yourself and get to behave like you can order your fellow citizens around now and again. Well, the flip side of all of that is that now and again, you just might have to risk your life. And it seems right. That's the deal going in. You get to have all of these extra privileges on the one hand, but on the other Now and again, you're going to be expected to do something that many others are not expected to do. That's the deal. Finally for today, I might just mention my episode 119 of TopCast. It's a bumper one. It's 90 minutes worth of me talking about work and heat, an introduction to thermodynamics. Work and heat happens to be the name of chapter six from Chiara Maletto's The Science of Canon Kant, but this doesn't contain any readings from that. The next episode will, but for this one... Well, it's just supposed to serve as an introduction to that chapter for people who might not have much of a background in thermodynamics. So I'm trying to present the material as you might get it at university or at high school, but perhaps with a little bit of interesting history and an interesting perspective as well. So that's my newsletter for now. Until next time. Bye-bye.